So this morning I'd like to speak about the last of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is Samma Samadhi. And I'll start by reading a poem, again from the contemporary Terikata translation. And the man who speaks here is called Sangha, community. When I left the only home I'd ever known, I thought I'd left everything behind. But I still carried all the years of running back and forth and around in circles after this or that. Just sitting still, those circles have broken apart and been carried away by the simple wind blowing in and out. All your old thoughts, like snow, falling on warm ground, just sit back and watch. So if we are doing this sitting back or standing, walking, lying down and watching, then uh, you know that means we apply right effort and right mindfulness and then if that's done in a continuous manner, then uh, samadhi arises. And the word samadhi, uh, you know, is, has been in the beginning when the teachings were translated into Western languages, been often translated as concentration and even on the paper we handed out it's called concentration. But that word actually isn't supported by the texts. According to the texts, it's uh, much better to say, for example, collectedness, stillness, non-wavering, or stability of mind. And the word samadhi, you know, comes from uh, a word which is related to the word samadahati, which means to put together. Like for example, you know, if you go out and collect wood for a, a bonfire, like what we did just yesterday. Just, you know, going out and taking all of those pieces and putting it on a heap, that would be samadahati. And that's the same root as samadhi. So that gives us a kind of an idea, you know, what is meant. And uh, because the word concentration in most Western languages is something like, you know, I'm concentrating on learning a skill or concentrating to sit down and make do the taxes, you know, where the children are in the background jumping around and I have to just really try to, you know, uh, cut everything else out so I can finish my task. And, and that's completely the wrong idea about what Samadhi is all about because those states especially the higher states of concentration, are very vast and expansive states. For example, I know we have been practicing the Brahma-viharas, and I think I gave a guidance on the Metta-Brahma-vihara in the beginning, and, you know, and then we were looking at infinite space, infinite consciousness, yeah, or the knowing of the space, and that was a very vast space. This is nothing like kind of, you know, just doing some numbers or something. It's a very different state of mind. 
concentration couldn't be further away from what is really meant. It's that vastness, that spaciousness, the stillness, you know, which is no longer disturbed by any of the five hindrances for mm -hmm. this time. You know, it's a going under the surface. You know, when you imagine, for example, the ocean, you know, has lots of waves on the top, especially if there's a lot of wind going on. And then if you go underneath, there's that stillness, you know. There's a, a fundamental, basic simplicity there, you know. And when uh, we practicing in the right way, you know, to a certain degree, we can tap into that for some time. It's temporal only. And the danger of that is because to be, you know, to be in that state is very pleasant because it's very calm, there's nothing rattling, you know, and there's a great sense of rest, of ease, peace, and the mind gets very, very clear. You know, when we are abiding in those states, we actually give the mind a very deep rest and the mind gets very strong and powerful. And then when one emerges from those states, the mind is turns towards inside. And then because it's been so cleared and rested, it can have much more power, you know, to penetrate through ignorance. But the danger of it is getting, you know, getting addicted basically to those peaceful states and then the mind, you know, as soon as you sit down, the mind struggles to get back there, you know, because three days ago I had like that thing and I want it again. And then, you know, that is, is a, is a lot of difficulty to get out from that uh, desire. But we can use that also as a, as a meditation object. So it's not that anything is lost, but we just need to know. We need to know what's going on and we need to know why we want to get back there because of the pleasure of it, you know. It's such a refined pleasure, a non-worldly pleasure where the Buddha was saying, you know, he is not afraid of uh, enjoying this kind of pleasure because it helps us to wean us off from other pleasures, from more coarse pleasures. And... Uh, so, you know, very vast and expansive states of mind. Like, for example, you know, the, uh, we speak about the Brahma Viharas, and, and the Brahmas are, according to the Buddhist cosmology, a certain class of gods, quite high gods, you know, who have very expansive minds. They can, you know, look at the world systems in the palm of their hand as if they would hold a mustard seed or a sesame seed. So you can imagine what kind of a mind those beings have. So this is why it's called Brahma Vihara because of that vastness. And uh, that's the normal state of mind of, of a being in the Brahma realm. And it's said, you know, according to the scriptures, if if there's human beings who have great capacity, you know, to um, work with the chanas, then on the passing away they might be born in such a realm, you know, which is similar to their own mind. But it's also like part of samsara, as you all know, so it, it has a, an end to it. And then once that karma is exhausted, then uh, next birth happens.
So, you know, simply speaking, um, Samadhi is the opposite of monkey mind, you know, the monkey in the jungle swinging from one branch to the next, you know, constantly on the search you know, for something nice or running away from something not nice. And then once the monkey has stopped and is still, that's Samadhi. And the monkey mind is the five hindrances, of course. And the Pali word for hindrances is Nivarana, and that implies you know, a wrong journey, a wrong going, you know, allowing the mind to go into the wrong direction. And then, you know, seeing that and stealing the mind. So it's the, through, through the continuity of mindfulness, samadhi arises. And, uh, you know, there's Basically speaking, there's two different applications of mindfulness. One is, you know, which is, you know, if we want to cultivate the absorptions or the jhanas or, you know, really very deep, still states of mind, then what needs to be done is, you know, to fix the mind on a single object, such as the breath or, for example, the Brahma-viharas are also such an object then, you know, the a human corpse in ten stages of decay is such an object. Then there's ten other reflections, like reflecting on Buddha Dhamma Sangha, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha. So there's many, many different objects, altogether 40 in the Pali Canon, they're called Kamatana, working basis, that means. And also ten of them are casinas, this is like a, discs of uh, different colors or also discs which display the elements like earth, water, fire and I think light. So there's different very very simple objects and then the mind completely kind of focuses on one of those objects and through that you know it becomes more and more still and then it, it opens up into these vast expansive states which are, you know, according to the canon, they are called the eight jhanas and the first four are fine material jhanas and the next four are non-material or immaterial. And these are very high states of concentration and I have very little or almost no experience with that because the practice uh, I have been trained in over the years is going a different direction, which I'll speak about in a moment. And uh, so those eight jhanas are very powerful places, you know, where the mind can go. And the Buddha was speaking a lot about those in, in the, if you look into the Bali canon, it's often mentioned. And it makes the mind very strong, powerful, pliable. You know, if you go to the gym, it's like somehow it's a bit of a maybe disrespectful comparison but you know you, you go to a place and then you really train the mind to, in all directions to its utmost capacity so then afterwards you come out of it you can do a lot of things you wouldn't be able to do if you haven't undergone this kind of training and one of the things which the mind can do is the psychic powers you know which many people are interested in somehow, you know, 
reading the mind of others, uh, walking through walls or walking on water, you know, because the mind has become so powerful, it can, uh, it can wield power over the elements. So it can, you know, it can walk over water and say, may there be earth, and then it will be like that. Not that I understand exactly how that works, but I've read it in the books. <laughs> and I mean, you have also heard about, you know, Jesus walking over water. So Jesus obviously also must have been practicing jhanas, you know. And it's, it is, even today, there's people who can do those things, you know, who can levi levitate up in the air. Well, you know, some, uh, you know, very accomplished yogis also, like in the Vajrayana tradition. <coughs> so it's not, you know, it's not like a story which isn't true. It can be done, but it's not liberating in itself, you know, floating up in the air and then coming down and getting angry if somebody steps on your toe. <laughs> it's not necessarily very uh, important to accomplish, you know. <laughs> But some people have a natural propensity for that, you know, and it's understood that they might have practiced, you know, those states in an earlier lifetime, then they come back and the mind can quite easily do that without having had any prior training. So it's something, you know, interesting to know and, and to check it out for yourself, you know, how, how it is for you. But also knowing, you know, the, the seduction of those states, you know, the, the power and the fascination and uh, being special and all of that. So it, it, there's a lot of danger in that, you know. If it's not practiced in combination with right view, it's a dead-end uh, road. And, you know, the Buddha himself has been practicing before his enlightenment. He was with two different teachers. One was called Alara Kalama and the other one Utaka Ramabuta. And those two, they were very powerful leaders, you know, of groups of practitioners at the Buddha's time. And they were able to, they were fire worshippers and other practices, what they did. And they could attain very high levels of concentration. But they didn't have right view. So it produced a lot of pride, you know, and... Uh, all of the things actually which keep us away from the liberated state. So at a certain time, you know, after the Buddha has been practicing with them and mastering all of what they taught, he moved on because he felt that's not the real thing, there's something else, there's something else. And then indeed, you know, under the Bodhi dream in Bodhgaya at one point, he he realized what's called the middle path, which we are speaking about in this retreat, the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, in the middle between the two extremes. And, uh, and then, you know, he, he wanted to share what he has learned. And he was like thinking, with whom could I sh share that? Because that insight is so subtle, most people will not understand, you know. And then he was thinking about it, and then he thought of those two former teachers of his, you know, that he would want to go and because they would be able to understand because their minds were ready, because they had been practicing these very high levels of concentrations and their minds were very mature because of that. But then they had both died, so he couldn't go and teach them. And then, then the next thing came to mind was he would go and go to his five former colleagues he had been practicing together with the five ascetics 
And that was then the Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta we were speaking about on the first evening. He went to see them and when he was explaining that one of the, the five of them had a Kondanya, he had, you know, he saw the Dhamma and he, he became a stream enter at that occasion. So that's how the whole uh, tradition has started, you know, of teaching what the Buddha has seen for himself, you know, under the Bodhi tree. So, so as I said earlier, you know, there's two applications of mindfulness. The first one is uh, fixing the mind, stabilizing the mind on a single object, and that leads to absorption, jhanas. And then, you know, when the practitioner emerges out of the jhana, when he or she kind of puts it down and comes out, the mind is very clear, bright, and then turning the mind towards insight, vipassana, which means, you know, seeing the three characteristics, impermanence, stressfulness, and uh, emptiness or not-self of all phenomena. So that's one way, you know, how the practice can be approached. And the second approach is, is not going into those deep uh, states of concentration, but you know, having a, a, a certain measure of concentration, which is called momentary concentration, or kanika samadhi in Pali. And you know, my first teacher, Archon Buddhadasa, compared it with you know, if you go to a door and you want to put in a key into a keyhole, this amount you do need certainly some concentration for that, but you know, it's something we most of us can do. And uh, it's that kind of concentration and noting change in the four foundations of mindfulness. And also noting that, you know, which is aroused by that change, which is the five hindrances, really, you know, who want to constantly push and pull against the way things really are, wanting to not have change, wanting to have change, and everything in between. So. So, you know, having a, a certain amount of samadhi is like, as I said before, you know, going underneath the surface of the ruffled waves on the, on the ocean and, uh, you know, kind of letting go of the fascination with sense experience, at least temporarily. And you know, we human beings, we are reincarnated in the human realm and this is a sense-desire realm. We have the sense organs and we can experience pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feeling. And as you have noticed, you know, we all want pleasant and we don't want unpleasant. So we are constantly pushed and pulled around until the day you know, where we wake up to that. And then, you know, we can actually through cultivation of the mind, through cultivation of mindfulness and, and samadhi and, and all the other path factors, we have more and more capacity to have a choice. You know, do we really need to do something uh, about this just because it produces unpleasant feeling or can it just know it because it's going to end anyway by itself. So that's the insight, you know, which we start to familiarize ourselves with through this second way of applying mindfulness, which, which doesn't need these very deep states of concentration, which just is 
okay with momentary concentration. But also, you know, it has to be informed by right view again. And right view is, you know, understanding the four noble truths and knowing, you know, knowing actions have consequences. So those two different applications of mindfulness and, uh, you know, if the mind is not in the grip of, of the hindrances, it naturally goes under the surface and returns, you know, to, to this more fundamental, very simple state of stillness. That's a natural state, but because of our karmic, you know, kind of propensities, we get dragged up into fascination, you know, with sense objects. And through, through vipassana, through inside meditation, through inside practice, you know, we, we're going to undermine that pull by, you know, kind of seeing how this whole process operates, you know, and looking through it and kind of through that a certain amount of uh, disenchantment sets in, Nibida in Pali. And disenchantment not in the sense that, you know, getting depressed, but being no longer kind of fascinated by the glamour of sense experience. And, you know, that's a very intense work, you know, to, to work through the fascination of it, because we all, you know, we have different weak spots where we are especially vulnerable, you know, for being, you know, uh, overwhelmed with interest, let's say, you know, and then, you know, being really put out of ourselves into all kinds of crazy ideas and dreams and, you know, to the degree that we need to have mental hospitals because people can become so out of touch with reality that they can no longer actually even look after themselves. So that's a very extreme state. We all are kind of operating within a certain spectrum. We can be here on retreat and, and you know, nothing dangerous happens. But we all have that, uh, we have the propensity, you know, for getting completely spun out if we, if we don't uh, look after ourselves, you know. And the Noble Eightfold Path is the utmost, the best template for looking after oneself, you know, living a life and, you know, doing what needs to be done and at the same time using everything which needs to be done as an opportunity for practice, you know, for liberating the mind from ignorance. And the Buddha said, you know, without samadhi, the mind is like a fish, you know, flapping on, on, flopping on dry land, you know, can't find any rest, can't sink straight, you know, because it's all about like the next, you know, the next moment of survival, basically. And then when, when the fish comes back into the water, it can really develop its, its the full potential of what it can do. And the same for the mind, you know, when the mind is still, it can develop its, its full potential of clarity. And then when it comes out of that very still state, it can cut through the net of delusion we tend to spin around experience. And the Buddha also said, you know, 
uh, it's a quote from the Matrima Nikaya, I paraphrase it a little bit, a bhikkhu who has samadhi understands things as they really are, the arising and passing away of the five aggregates. And the five aggregates, you know, are just like the five components which make up a human existence. So seeing the arising and passing away, if the mind is really clear, calm and still, it can see that much more powerfully than if the mind is agitated. And that's the function of samadhi, you know, to prepare, to get the mind ready, to make it pliable, to get it ready for insight. It's not an aim or a goal in itself. And that's something you know, to be particularly careful about because it, it is very pleasant. And you know, and, and a, a, a still mind is also a very beautiful uh, image, you know, which we can compare it with. It's like a, a mountain lake, you know, which is very still, and then the mountains around the lake are reflected in the lake. And at the same time, you know, the water is very clear, and we can see to the bottom of the lake and can see, you know, the fish and the whatever else is going on in that lake. So it's it's a sense of complete transparency, of seeing through everything as it is. Yeah. And then that leads us back again to right view. <coughs> and that's, you know, as we mentioned several times, how those eight path factors are, you know, intertwined with each other and then they produce a very strong support for practice. And, you know, and the clearer insight into the way things are is, the, the more strong right view becomes. And then if right view is really strong, then right intention is the result of that. Then we have more power you know, to bring our lives into alignment with that, which is a right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then if, that, you know, if we accomplish that, then we have more capacity for practice. There's more energy there you know, to put into the practice. And then, of course, that has an effect on the mindfulness and on the stability of the mind. And on and on it goes like this. You know, it gets ever more effective, more strong. And you know, the, the need to find satisfaction through the senses decreases. And then we can still, you know, enjoy the good things which come our way, but we are not kind of enslaved, you know, to those things. And that's a great good fortune. So I'd like to end by reading the poem once more of Sangha community. <clears throat> When I left the only home I had ever known, I thought I'd left everything behind. But I still carried all the years of running back and forth and around in circles after this or that. Just sitting still, those circles have broken apart and been carried away by the simple wind blowing in and out. All your old thoughts, like snow, falling on warm ground, 
just sit back and watch. <laughs>